Hi, I'm John Moist, and you're listening to the Grad Life Podcast, where we take a deep dive into topics related to graduate education at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. If you can, cast your mind back to high school. For some of us, it's been a little longer than others. You might think of the sound of chattering classmates in the hallway, or maybe of studying late for an important test. Adolescence is a particularly challenging time that comes with many difficult emotions, and it's never been easy to be a teenager. But here at the University of Illinois, researchers have demonstrated that past experiences with bullying, friendlessness, and other forms of social exclusion directly impacts teenage girls' perceptions of their self-worth. Beckman Institute researcher and professor of psychology Karen Rudolph and her team think that this is a crucial first step in crafting intervention programs to improve teen mental health. But wait, what's Beckman? Well, the Beckman Institute is an interdisciplinary research institute on our campus that's home to nearly 200 faculty members, 400 graduate students, and 90 postdocs across 40 academic departments. Research at the Beckman Institute tackles topics like intelligence, molecules, and imaging for scientific advances that couldn't occur any other way. Today, I'm thrilled to have the opportunity to chat with Haley Skimba, a doctoral student here at UIUC and Beckman Institute researcher, to talk about her work on Dr. Rudolph's research team. Here's Haley talking about her research in a clip from the Beckman Institute. There are various things that can impact or put adolescents at risk for experiencing things like depression or anxiety. Some of those things might be, you know, genetic predispositions or things that come from the individual themselves. But there's also a lot of research that really looks at how social environment and negative experiences in the peer group can make adolescents particularly sensitive to their social environment and put them at risk for things like depression or anxiety or other mental health problems. Haley was gracious enough to come in and chat about her research, her background, and where she plans to take her work from here. Stay tuned for a great conversation. Remember, you can always read more on our show notes and at grad.illinois.edu slash gradlife. Here's the interview. First of all, it's a pleasure to have you here. Thank I really you. want to thank you for taking the time and coming in. It's great to have you here this morning. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Why don't you tell us who you are and where you're from and just a little bit about how your journey brought you to Illinois. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so I was born in Northeast Pennsylvania. Uh, so I've lived there for the majority of my life. Uh, went to a very small liberal arts uh, private school. And then kind of got interested in research, but wasn't quite sure exactly what I wanted to do. Um, so I had a this option essentially to start grad school at that point, right after undergrad, sure, or yeah. to kind of work for a little while and try to figure it out. And I chose to do that. So I moved from Pennsylvania to California um, and worked as a research assistant for a couple of years. And then I essentially applied to grad school and ended up coming here for oh, that's awesome. figuring that out. Yeah. yeah, that's great. So what did you do while you were a research assistant? Did you work uh, in any cool projects? So I was interested in clinical psychology, but I did not know what I wanted to do with clinical psychology. Sure, so yeah, I yeah. just wanted to work with a clinical population. So I worked at UC Davis um, and I was a coordinator for a grant and also a clinic coordinator. So I was working with an early psychosis population okay, and yeah. doing a lot of work with kind of like at risk individuals who did not have kind of a full blown psychosis yet, but people who were at risk for things like schizophrenia. Things sure. Like that. Absolutely. And, and probably working with populations like that informed your decision to go on into graduate school. Yes, exactly, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And to kind of get a real, I tell my undergrads that I work with now that all the time of like, 
if you can get some on the ground experience of like, I like research or this is what I want to commit to for six years or five years, whatever it might be of your life, then it's good to have that knowledge going in that you actually like this to, to continue with it. I think that's wise advice, right? To, to get some experience doing the sort of day in, day out work. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is a fantastic transition you've handed me here, right? (laughs) Because uh, I've been interviewing folks and talking about what they're day in, day out life is like as a graduate student. Like, what's it like to work in this kind of project? That sort of thing. So I'd love to hear before we move into anything more specific, I'd love to talk about your project. But first, what's your research specialty? You know, what's your quick pitch when somebody says, oh, what do you do? Yeah, yeah. So I I think throughout different experiences I've had with like clinical populations and more normative populations, especially youth who had experienced um, like adversity of some kind, whether that's things like abuse or neglect on the more uh, severe end of things and kind of how that influences them in the long run. So what implications does that have for things like their mental health or for how they might develop things like depression or anxiety? And so I became really interested in that connection because I worked for a little bit of time as a, an individual who worked with youth who, let me trace it back. Sure, absolutely. absolutely. (laughs) I worked with um, youth who had experienced things like that, like severe abuse, neglect, and they were in a residential center. And so working with those individuals really kind of got me to think about like, well, this connection seems to be there that these kids are very emotionally dysregulated. So why is that? And I didn't mention this earlier, but I had a neuroscience background. So I was a neuroscience major in my undergrad. And so I, I became very interested in looking at that from a brain perspective. So what's happening in the brain? Interesting. Interesting. And the reason... I am excited to be having this conversation with you, right, is I think the issues you study tend to be in the news a lot right now. (laughs) (laughs) I I get that sort of knowing chuckle from you because, yeah, yeah, yeah. I I read a lot of articles about teen mental health. I see a lot of articles specifically about teen girls' mental health, right? And it's tremendously interesting to hear in your research that folks are looking not just at social factors or maybe not just at, you know, what around folks determines, but what's happening in the brain when folks are experiencing, um, in your case, perhaps experiencing a a lack of belonging, right? Or maybe some social exclusion. What's actually happening? It seems to me to be very interesting to want to take a look at the chemical changes in the brain as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And there's a, there's a ton of research out there, people kind of investigating this and kind of still trying to figure it out. I mean, Neuroscience is a very evolving field. It's still, it feels like it's been around a long time, but things like neuroimaging or like functional neuroimaging, those are pieces that I feel like as a field, we're still evolving and changing and making advancements with. So that's, you're kind of doing this like really exciting research in the context of advancing your tools as well. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so that's fascinating. Not only are you getting to work on research that might be socially applicable or current in a way, set all that in a different bucket, you also get to work in a way that pushes the field you're in forward. Yeah, That's probably exciting, one of the benefits, yeah. I have to sneak this in, probably one of the benefits of working at Illinois, yes. right? Where you have access to this kind of scale and, sure, and, and yeah. this kind of research capacity. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's move then from talking into a general overview of what you do and how you do it. Let's talk about the project that you heard to talk about today. Sure. Do you want to give us a little overview of, of what you studied and what you found? Yeah, sure. So uh, the data that we were using for this specific project, we were interested in kind of how experiences like peer adversity, so things like... Um, being bullied or being excluded, being victimized, how that can influence girls' um, 
kind of inner, we call them interpersonal needs. So kind of this need to kind of belong with others or this need to kind of get approval from others or how that can motivate you in a way that influences how you feel about yourself. Um, and part of the reason we became interested in this, especially with teenage girls, is because we know as they essentially come into adolescence and become a teenager, you start to separate from your parents a bit. Your parents are kind of not as important to you as they once were as a child, right? You start to kind of associate with your peers more frequently. You become more invested in kind of what your peers think about you. Yeah. But we know that as human beings, we all have these, this desire or need to kind of belong with other people or be approved to other people. But teenagers and especially teenage girls feel that to a degree that's you know, more than even adults do or children do. It's kind of like this this developmental period where peers become very salient. When you say that you study these things, I'm interested in your methodologies. Yeah. How'd you study them? And what kind of experiment design did you use to look at what a lot of people, I think, might call something that's hard yeah, to express, for right? For sure. Yeah, and, and if you say to me, how are our interpersonal <laughs> needs formed? I'd go, oh, I don't even know where to start, right? And I, yeah. I think it's... I'm very interested in in the methods you use to tease that out. Sure. Yeah, Yeah. of course. So obviously we came at it from this kind of question of like being interested in understanding interpersonal needs and to understand them, you kind of have to have a way to study them as you're pointing to. Um, And so we do that actually by creating measures that allow us to kind of get at some of these constructs. So the main ones that we're interested in for this specific study were something that we call this need to belong, which is exactly what it sounds like of just kind of how, to what extent, um, to what extreme level, I guess, or to what I don't want to call it severity, but to what level do girls kind of feel this need to belong to other people? Like I said, we all know that we have these needs, but people vary in how strongly they feel them. My need to belong is not going to be the same as yours or maybe somebody else's. They might be similar, but again, people kind of vary. Yeah, we're going to have different things we value, different things we look for. Yeah, exactly. yeah. Yeah. So you're measuring something at once universal. And very particular. Yes. That's fascinating. Something that varies between people to some extent. And like, that's part of the reason to study it, right? Is because in teenagers, this is something that in in teenage girls, we know that it is something that becomes more salient in, in the group universally, but individuals can feel this differently. So really the question for the specific study was, well, to what extent do those early experiences of like adversity, bullying in the peer group or being victimized or not having friends how does that relate to, as a teenager, how I feel these kinds of interpersonal needs, this need to belong, or this, um, the other construct that we call is a need for approval. So which is essentially, to what extent do peers base their self-worth on how their peers approve of them? And so the, to get to your question, going on a tangent here, but oh, to no, get to your question. Absolutely. Circular routes and <laughs> routes, yeah. But uh, essentially we give them self-report forms. So we give them kind of a scale that kind of we've created and that we've uh, demonstrated based on previous research kind of captures this piece. So it might have so many items on and we ask them just to kind of fill out based on certain um, statements to what extent they agree or kind of disagree with those statements. So someone might say, um, a statement for like the need for approval might be like, um, I feel like a bad person when my peers don't like me or something like that. And so we get them to kind of rate, you know, how, to what extent do you feel that? You know, it's how, how much do you kind of relate to that statement? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you're testing initially, how much do you relate to this statement? And then 
where does it go from there? Yeah, so then we kind of, well, we take a, a score of all of the different items on the measure um, and kind of get like what we call like a mean score and kind of the stronger that that, uh, I guess the higher that number is, that mean would kind of encapture someone having a higher need to belong or need for approval. Sure. Um, versus if it's a lower number, then we, we would say that that kind of interpersonal need is not quite as strong for that individual. Now, may I ask a question here? Sure. This isn't in a sort of moral way, right? Like you're not saying one of these is better than the other. Like mm -hmm. you're trying to find the one that works. You're not saying that. No. Yeah, interesting. No. It's really just a, a way of saying, so uh, Dr. Rudolph, who is the PI for my lab, has done a lot of previous work in this area mm -hmm. in this construct of kind of need for approval and um, basically sussing it out and uh, basically creating a scale to allow us to measure it. And so we just kind of, we come at the project from being interested in these specific constructs. So really just trying to understand the question of like, does periodicity relate to these specific things that we're trying to study? And so it's a matter of just basically looking for that association of like, if there's higher adversity, does that lead to a higher need to belong or a higher need for approval? In, Excellent. To some yeah. Extent. yeah. Yeah. So tell me about, and this is the part I've been really looking forward to asking about. <laughs> tell me about cyberball. Oh, sure. Yes. <laughs> so everything I'm describing to you so far is really just, um, to get at more of these like trait, like, uh, attributes or kind of needs that individuals might have. So that's just kind of asking them, not in any specific situation, but just on a, in general, Yeah. rate this statement for me of kind of like how much you agree or disagree with it. When it comes to cyberball, we were interested in kind of like, well, to what extent might we kind of capture interpersonal needs in the context of something specific, some kind of stressor. So cyberball has been around for a long time now. Uh, it's, it's, you started in um, social psychology research in a different realm, and people have adapted and played with it for quite some time. Okay, yeah. Uh, but it's it's meant to be kind of a, a model of social exclusion. So essentially what it is is meant to make somebody feel like they've been excluded. Sure, okay. So, so yeah. someone does not know coming in. Um, yeah. We tell them you're going to play a virtual game with two other players. When we adapted this task, we had pictures on the screen so they could kind of see these two other people that they thought they were playing with. Um, and they were kind of deceived to believe that those people are also here for kind of a lab study and that they were going to be playing with you. Sure, when in um, reality, it's they are just not a computer. Here. Yes, okay. <laughs> in okay. reality, they're not here. They're yes. just playing against a computer. <laughs> um, and it's very simple. It, it's uh, basically all you're doing is uh, there's two different rounds of Cyberball in the first round. Everybody's just tossing a ball to each other. So the participant that we're, it's in for our study gets the ball as many times as anybody else does. And this is all on the computer, right? So it's just a virtual little figurine. They see their own hand. They toss it to someone else. That person may toss it back to them or someone else. And it just goes on like that. Sure. There's no rules. They don't have to. They can do whatever they want with it. That's round one, and we call that kind of the inclusion round. So the person is included the entire time. Okay, they're experiencing playing cyberball and Ex being included, and being included. all the t equally as much as everybody else. Exactly, yeah. yeah okay. And then okay. we do kind of a second round. So in the exclusion round, it's exactly that. So they are included for a short period of time, but then they become excluded. So they just see two other people on the screen essentially tossing the ball back and forth to each other okay. for the rest of it. And they're deliberately excluded. Again, they don't know they've been deliberately excluded. Right. They just think the two people they're playing the game with kind of don't care. Right? For whatever reason, yeah. For whatever yeah. reason, yeah. they're being, in, in the terms here, socially excluded. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. And then what do you measure? Are you measuring something after they play Cyberball yeah, that both, second time? Exactly. Both before and after. Okay. So kind of I was talking about those um, these 
interpersonal needs is the best term we're going to keep coming up with, but essentially studying that kind of as a trait light thing in the context of cyberball, we're looking at it in a more like situation specific kind of way. So we asked them to fill out kind of like in this exact moment right now, answer some of these questions for me. To what extent do you feel disconnected from other people right now? And we have them do that before cyberball, after cyberball, and then uh, probably like 20 some minutes or something after that, okay. that they sure. played the game. So sure. we're kind so you of want to test their opinion right after playing it. And then a little bit later. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So kind of just to see how, to what extent do these situation specific needs, how do they vary both before, after, and then after a little bit of a delay of playing this game. Yeah. And so we related that piece of looking at both before and after and after the delay to um, some of those experiences of adversity. Okay. So kind of basically looking at the connection between how severe somebody's adversity is in terms of the peer domain and how that relates to in the in those in the moment needs of feeling disconnected around other people. And what we see is even before they played the game, girls who had really higher levels of adversity had... Um, we're feeling more disconnected or having some of those pieces of, of threatening kind of uh, interpersonal needs even before playing the game. Sure. Oh, okay. So having some pre-existing, you know, emotions maybe running around your head, right? And then you play cyberball, play uh, exclusion cyberball, if you will, mm-hmm. and that amplifies those feelings. It makes you more more yes. receptive to it. And that's what we expect to happen kind of across everybody, right? Like sure. we expect kind of this is going to be a general thing where you're trying to figure out, gosh, these people just excluded me and I have no idea why. So, yeah, I'm going to yeah. feel like there's a threat to my belonging needs in this moment. Yeah, Absolutely. I don't feel like I'm yeah. belonging. I do feel disconnected from yeah. other people. So we did see that in our entire sample, this little blurb where everybody kind of goes up of having a threat to these needs. But then the people who have more of the peer adversity, they kind of stay in that elevated state where there are, for a longer duration of time, if we measure it again, those people are having more of those threats to their needs even longer than everybody else. Everybody else might come back down to feeling less threatened, but they're still kind of like feeling activated, elevated from it. So knowing that you, what you found and hearing some things about it, um, I would love to know just a bit of background about the project. How did you get involved in this? Because this is, as I understand, you work with the Beckman Institute, mm-hmm. the Family Studies Lab at the Beckman Institute. So, yeah. 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 We're, so we're housed in psychology, but um, Karen, uh, Dr. Rudolph is a Beckman affiliate. So she has a lot of connections um, through previous work sure. and then through um, current work that we're doing now. So actually, all of the data and everything I've described thus far, when I got involved in the project, it was all retroactive data that had already been collected from a different longitudinal study that was ongoing. Okay. So we were kind of picking up pieces of it to kind of examine the things that we were interested in. All the data had been collected and we were just kind of looking at it. Yeah. And actually when they were doing the cyberball task, um, although we didn't look at it for this specific project, they were in the scanner as they were doing it. So we were looking at the brain activation at the same time. When you say the scanner, I'm assuming you mean MRI? (laughs) Yes. Okay. Okay. Yeah. 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 That's fascinating. So while they're playing Cyberball, you even have the ability to look inside their head as it And were. just kind of see. Yeah. yeah. If we compare kind of that exclusion round to this inclusion round, what do we see in terms of brain regions that might be activated or kind of what's going on? Yeah, that's fascinating. So we've talked about your background leading up to coming to Illinois, but let's. how did you, for example, you have talked about Dr. Rudolph. How did you meet Dr. Rudolph and get involved in the project to begin with? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I um, 
I came in knowing I was very interested. Uh, and part of the reason I came to UIUC was because I knew that one of the grants that I've been working on throughout grad school was going to be focused on these things that I'm interested in to kind of look at the connection between um, experiences of adversity, both in the peer and family domain, and looking at their connection to things like depression, anxiety, and um, mental health in general from like a neural perspective. So I knew some of um, the ongoing work that Dr. Rudolph has in connection with Dr. Wendy Heller. They kind of are both on a grant together that's kind of been examining that. And so I essentially just came into grad school being interested to work with uh with Dr. Heller and then kind of expanded out as part of this grant to working with Dr. Rudolph. And she has uh, been amazing with just kind of having these longitudinal data sets that took her a lot of time and effort to kind of um, collect and then wanting people to kind of continue working with the data in different ways to kind of explore different questions and things like that. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. So it seems like coming to Illinois didn't just afford you the ability to study what you want to study, but also access to some folks who were awesome and able to connect you to some really great research projects. Yeah, yeah that's amazing. I'm interested in asking you specifically, as we talk about this, now we've sort of gone through your background, what the project is, how you got there. Uh, The last sort of thing I really want to ask you a question about, you're doing this, right? So you're sitting with me, you're sitting with people. (laughs) I've seen videos you've been in talking about this project. First of all, the two of you do a fantastic job. Uh, Wonderful at talking about your research. But I want to ask you about that. What's it like to, to go from oh, I think we might have something. Let's look at some data. Let's see what's happening here. And then to go all the way to communicating that research in public, right? To sitting in rooms like this and saying, well, here's what we did and here's how it felt like. <laughs> yeah. What's that like? Has that, has that been an interesting journey for you as a graduate student? I think so, yeah. yeah. I think it's something that you don't... Uh, you know it's important and you kind of come into grad school knowing that I want to translate this and I, I want to communicate my findings, right, to a scientific community that I'm involved in. But sure. also, how do I communicate this to a general community, people who are not scientists, people who are not researchers? How do I communicate these findings in a way that is not going to be, you know, is going to be taken accurately? So something that's not going to be taken um and portrayed in a light that isn't true to what I would say. And also, how do I say it in a way that's understandable and kind of translates easily? Because even as I'm talking now, when Karen and I kind of were thinking about, okay, how do we translate some of the findings? How do we put it out there in in the media or whatever way? We kind of actually were avoiding the use of the term like interpersonal needs. Like, what is that? How are people going to understand what interpersonal (laughs) needs are? Like, we've we've been thinking and talking about them, obviously, in this scientific context, but we don't frequently use those terms in everyday language with other people, right? Oh, yeah, so sure. I'm not frequently walking in and out of my coworker's office and saying, does anybody have any interpersonal needs I can meet right. today? Yeah, I, I'm just wondering if everybody here is feeling particularly excluded, although maybe yeah. that's something I should do. <laughs> right. And I think if, you, if you're if you able yeah. to have like a conversation, you know, where you sit down and kind of explain it and then it becomes, yeah. it's a common language between both of us. We've used it several times in this setting, Yes, but it takes some of that kind of getting on the same you know, level and to understand what we're both talking about to, to use it kind of frequently. I find that is the challenge with talking about research is that it is both a monumental challenge in terms of, um, I picture like a highway, we're getting on the on-ramp, right? You have to on-ramp somebody. You Mm -hmm. have to say, okay, when I say interpersonal needs, I mean this. When I say exclusion, I mean this. When I say cyberball, I mean this. (laughs) Right, right. Right. Um, And you also have the ability or the importance of the ability to take what is a big concept and do this boiling down, right? right? Like leaving leaving the leaving the food on the stove till it reduces a little bit. And you've got that two sentence kernel, right? Of yes. what the research is. Yeah. But it's it's interesting because I think 
the true challenge of this and something I think you're navigating well is being able to tack back and forth between the two to say, oh, this is a matter of who my audience is. Yeah. I think it's interesting to watch these projects go from nascent ideas to, oh, yeah, we did an interview about it. And like, <laughs> this is what we came up with saying. So thank you for talking to me about that. That's, yeah. that's really interesting. Okay. I have a quick wrap up question for you that I, I can't resist asking. So you've done this project. Mm -hmm. Long term, what questions and conversations would you like to be participating in? Like what, what drives you? What do you want to do with the rest of your career as an academic researching this kind of stuff? Yeah, that's a, that's a, such a fabulous question. I think I, so I have been in a clinical psychology program, so I have envisioned my career as being positioned in a place where I'm doing both clinical work of, you know, providing direct kind of assessment or intervention services to individuals, but also being in a position where I'm continuing a program of research. And really, I think there's so much to uncover. Um, my specific line of research is really interested in how, like I said, experiences of adversity relate to different types of skills, both in, you know, I think I think a lot of the work that we're doing now is a lot of really helpful context for understanding studying adolescence. So to understand kind of these pieces of like, well, these different experiences that they may have as, as children are kind of early in their life, look at the impact that I can have on how they are as teenagers in terms of how they navigate their social world, how they interpret the world, how they see other people viewing them, how it influences things like their self-worth. How does that kind of connect to things like mental health, depression, anxiety, to what extent can that lead to some of those different adverse outcomes that we want to try and prevent? Yeah. And I think for me, um, I kind of take all of this as kind of helpful context, because in my specific research interests, I'm really interested in how experiences of adversity impact emotion regulation skills. So the ability for, for girls or teenagers in general to be able to sit with their emotions in a way that's going to be helpful for them. So to be able to use some of these adaptive skills, these pieces that we know are really useful to be able to reframe a situation, to reinterpret it, to kind of maybe I I play cyberball, but I'm able to kind of think about this that like, oh, maybe they knew each other and they just don't know me. So sure. being able to yeah. reframe some of these difficult situations in a way that influences our emotional health in yeah. a positive way. And that's what I'm really interested in is kind of looking at to what extent does adversity impact those higher level or more complex kinds of emotion regulation skills, but also how do we understand that from like a neural perspective? So from, if I look in the brain, if I can kind of understand some of the circuitry that's going on, how does that get interrupted by adversity or how does that look different for somebody who has adversity and what implications does that have for treatment or intervention or prevention? So I think a lot of my research is it's not going to obviously directly solve any of these problems, but I think it's going to be like a, a little piece of the puzzle that's going to help us kind of move in the right direction to to essentially build some of these prevention pieces, be really informed in what we do in terms of prevention or intervention for youth. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting how you say, I don't think this is a solution because I think the solution is a lot of stuff like this. Yeah. Right. It's, I it's, think it's a part of yes, the solution. I think there's yeah. a brick in the wall yeah. aspect here, if you'll pardon the Pink Floyd, you know, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think, I think there's like a, yeah, this and many other things. I think that's a really positive way of looking at it. Right. We're trying to not just say, we're going to see if we're going to find the thing. Yeah. Right? But you're also saying what we're going to do is we're going to see if we can build skills. We're going to see if we can 
identify things, right? Yeah, like yeah. there's ways to build capacity here. Right. And I yeah. think when you're talking about kind of translating these findings, one of the biggest things that came away from the specific project was like, well, now we kind of, we have some evidence that kind of points to the fact that these difficult experiences early in life do impact youth in ways that can be, you know, detrimental potentially of like, if I'm really basing all of my self-worth on what my peers think about me or kind of how they interpret me. And and if someone doesn't like me, well, that makes me feel really awful about myself. Well, how do we teach youth ways to not do that? Maybe to kind of build up some of that self-esteem, that self-worth based on factors that are outside of what other people think about them. Yeah. So I kind of like how a lot of this research really is just an informative piece to kind of think about, well, how do we intervene with some of these things or how do we how do we gain this knowledge to help us move in the right direction? Yeah. Yeah. It's been wonderful talking to you. Oh I'm really, God. really happy you took the time to come in today and talk. This oh, great. thank you so much. It was wonderful to be here. Grad Life is a production of the Graduate College at the University of Illinois. If you want to learn more about the Grad Life podcast, blog, newsletter, or anything else Graduate College related, visit us at grad.illinois.edu for more information. Until next time, I'm John Moist, and this has been the Grad Life podcast.